in investment practice. If you actually are bringing empathy and compassion and an understanding of our connectedness, you will have a different view of risk. You will have a different view of how you assess the person in front of you and what they look like and how they're dressed and what you think they are. And you might be willing to be just that much more humble about coming in with being on the money side of the table. Money can drive innovative opportunities for equity, but it isn't easy. Impact investing purports to be a kinder and gentler capitalism, but it's unclear if that is really a thing. Regardless, it is important for people with social missions and business ideas to have access to capital. When that happens, remarkable change is possible in communities around the world. I'm Dr. Adrian Johnson-Williams, and this is Equitable. Hi, Audrey. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Adrian. It's so good to be here with you. I want to start with just an introduction, but not a typical introduction. So why don't you introduce yourself to us without talking about your work? Oh, Adrian, <laughs> that's a really good one. Uh, and um, I'll give that a shot. I am originally from Geneva, Switzerland, but grew up in the States. And um, as you know very well, studied certainly in college in the U.S., and have had this uh, opportunity to grow up as like a third culture kid in a household where we had a certain um, ethnic Armenian identity, but also very much an, an American identity growing up and this Swiss overlay from just having been born here and, and grown up here as well. I think when I try to find the right, right way to describe, you know, who am I without talking about work, it's really... Um, as somebody who's um, been skirting the edges of, you know, kind of the spaces in between mm -hmm. various sorts of um, identities and cultures. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that you are Armenian, uh, which is not something I think the kind of American listeners or audiences think about or talk about very much. Uh, and so say more about what it means to be Armenian uh, in the United States when you were here. I, I think it's um, like many small ethnic groups who've been part of the great immigration stories to the U.S. It's an identity that's a very fluid one that we've grown up with, which is synonymous with tight-knit families and lots of people in your business and um, mm -hmm. a certain set of values grounded in essentially studying as hard as you can and working as hard as you can and not taking anything for granted. Yeah. And um, I think we're part of the diaspora community. So it's also an identity that's not rooted in a particular nation because mm -hmm. um, I tried to go and live in Armenia for a year um, back in grad school days and realized, you know, I'm really not from there either. So mm -hmm. um it's kind of, again, that, that, that fluid in-between kind of identity. And growing up in the U.S., you, you know, there's all these little pockets of so many different kinds of communities. I think that's yeah. been the richness, the opportunity for, so, you know, for many of us in so many different ways to access the social capital that comes with that. Mm -hmm. And now you're back in Geneva and you're um, thinking about a lot of issues facing Armenia in the world right now. I know I've seen you 
post about it and talk about it. So say a little bit about kind of the history of Armenia and what's happening now, particularly within the context of this podcast, within the context of equity. Yeah, um, this is a a topic that is really at the forefront of 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 my mind over the last year, given the the incredibly high scale political tension in the region. The history is one that's very much one of persecution, and there's a lot of victimhood um, that's embedded in the narratives um, that we've grown up with, primarily because. The closest thing we had to living memory, which was the experience of our grandparents, was, you know, this experience of genocide. Mm-hmm. So uh, rooted in the traumas that are so intergenerational and imprinted and passed on, which really actually don't belong to our generation. We didn't yeah. see any of this. But you still kind of integrate that, the injustice. Mm-hmm. And so I know um, a lot of people, a lot of young people in our communities really have this outsized sense of social justice on the back of what they've heard and what they know their great-grandparents and grandparents lived through. Mm-hmm. Um, bringing that into the sphere of equity, I think it comes down ultimately to fair and just treatment and access to the kind of collective consciousness of, mm-hmm. our, of our global media marketplace. I think on some level, the stories that make it to the forefront of consciousness are what are defining generations. And I think from the Armenian perspective, it's this constant battle to stay relevant, to to say, you know, there's a survival story here and there's a, a story of hopefully reinvention mm-hmm. for the next generations. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm really glad uh, we get to hear it because there isn't enough discussion about what equity looks like on the international stage from the kind of United States perspective. So thanks for sharing that. So now let's talk about your work, Dr. Selian. I know that (laughs) you don't get called that very often, but you are a Dr. Selian. So introduce us to your work. So I've had the opportunity to join, of, of all things, an investment fund, a vehicle an advisory vehicle to a trust structure that runs investment funds. And this is, as you may recall, Adrian, mm-hmm. not something that was a core area of interest for me in college because right. you and I were in college yeah. together. And it was, although the, the thread that runs through the story is still intact, it's, I was always really interested in international affairs that bled into international development. And I wanted to study development economics and what makes nations successful and what allows for a thriving and prosperity, mm-hmm. especially for marginalized communities and people living in countries who don't have access to public services? So th- those types of things were at the root of um, my interests as a younger person. And then now, really by chance, by serendipity, I ended up working for this investment initiative that is focused entirely on impact and development. And so I'm part of this much wider ecosystem that's well-defined today of lots of people who are passionate about the power of capital and the power of business models to be able to uplift, Mm -hmm. to be able to contribute to better 
global well-being outcomes in health and in income in education and other core areas. And so in a more practical sense, what I've been involved with is how do we find great social innovators? In this case, because of the nature of the trust involved, because they are of Indian origin, the goal has been to deploy this capital in India. Mm-hmm. So since 2006 or seven, when I joined them, it's been all about getting this capital into the businesses, the social enterprises, many of which are kind of hybrid mm-hmm. between nonprofit and for-profit mm-hmm. because of their dedication to mission, first and foremost, and to ensuring that we're doing something with this capital to either increase incomes, create jobs, support livelihoods, and provide, you know, heretofore unavailable mm-hmm. critical um, services mm-hmm. and products mm-hmm. to communities that usually don't get access to yeah. these. So uh, for those who maybe listening who aren't familiar with impact investing, could you just give us a kind of a summary of basically the basic theory of change? Like what is impact investing? Why does people who invest think it'll work? Yeah, I think it's um, it's such an interesting evolution, which on some level does reflect the shifting consciousness of a much broader political economic system. Mm-hmm. You know, our capitalist model has clearly created um, incredible prosperity for some, but unbelievable disparity mm-hmm. in experience. And this is reflected all over in and through the United States yes. and everywhere. And so... Impact investing is about really thinking about the purpose of capital. Obviously, with traditional classic approaches, pure rent-seeking behavior, you try to maximize your financial return. Mm -hmm. You want as much money as fast as you can get it in your pocket. This paradigm has shifted as, and albeit, you know, interestingly, albeit like through and with usually the younger generation of some of the wealthiest families in the world. Mm -hmm. They've come forward and said, you know, we have so much, we don't need to maximize financial return at the expense of anything else. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of backing into it, you know, in a more articulate way. It's looking at, we want social returns. We want to ensure that this money is not only powering or fueling a business model that will eventually be able to cover its own costs, Mm -hmm. but it must also deliver outputs and outcomes that make life better for people. Mm -hmm. And that means, you know, providing a service that was never there before. That could mean we have many examples. We're an investor, for example, in a company that has created a uh, one of the world's first fully biodegradable compostable sanitary napkins. Oh, wow. Sanitary napkins in India alone comprise, there's 36 trillion of them that end up in landfill. It's the worst thing for the planet. Mm -hmm. It's not good for women's health Mm -hmm. either. And so when you invest in a business that's totally a business, there's procurement of machines, there's mass production, there's volumes, there's packaging, there's distribution, there's all of that. Mm -hmm. But it's also about propagating a product that is going to create jobs for women in rural communities, that is also going to be really good for the planet because it's not going to contribute to the big plastics and mm-hmm. landfill problems. Mm-hmm. So that is an example of an impact investment, something where the the double bottom line is really clear. It's not just the money, 
It's got to also be the social. And there's ways to define your social. It could be also environmental and ecological and so on. Thank you. I, you used the, the phrase double bottom line, which I think is something um, that I have started to use more and more uh, because I realized that when we talk about in the U.S., it's more and more where there's a language around um, impact investing, but it has been a lot of language around social entrepreneurship, I think, is the kind of business side of it. Uh, and the impact investing is the other side. I'm curious to know if you think that impact investing has any limitations. So are there things that are necessarily social goods, public goods that are also necessarily inefficient that would not be appealing to impact investing? And what do you think about those? That's a good question, um, because there's always this overarching fear that in trying to serve a mission, you may be subsidizing something that the market doesn't want or need, mm -hmm. or that doesn't truly serve you know, the communities and those that, that are intended to be served. Mm -hmm. There's certainly that question, because in the fervor to deploy this capital and and a lot of this has to do with like the um, who sets the strategy. Yeah. Who defines what is going to be really helpful and catalytic for a community? It really has to come from the community yeah. itself. If you're looking at the indigenous communities, you really shouldn't be coming in with like, oh, I think you guys should really do some fisheries work, wow. you know, and, <laughs> and you know, or the the problem I think is that. It's not a problem. It's it's a good thing. There's so much goodwill and all these bright, sparky, super educated young people. Many of them, there's so many U.S. educated young people who have moved to every corner of, I don't know, Africa and India yeah. and South Asia. And they're everywhere and they're propagating these models. I think it's amazing. I think it's testament to this elevated consciousness that's coming through our, the educational institutions mm -hmm. today. But again, it has to come back into and in partnership with and rooted into the local mindsets yeah. and the local, you know, brains who are just as sophisticated and know their problems much better yes. than the gringos showing up. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a, a really key part of addressing the limitations of impact investing. I also think, I mean, some social entrepreneurs, Adrian, like I'm sure you've heard it too, like they're saying... Look, I, I don't want to wear the social as if it's, I don't want that to become a stigma. Yeah. Because as soon as you say you're a social entrepreneur, and I'm being very blunt and crass yeah, of here, course. but is that, you know, that shouldn't be code for, I want soft money. Yeah. And I want a subsidy. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't detract from the, the depth and rigor of an amazing intervention mm -hmm. just because it's social. Yeah. And so, especially in the US, like, Social is a really bad word. It really is. And it's scary how bad that word is. Yeah. Meanwhile, it's never more needed than in, than in the U.S. now, I think. <laughs> I can't begin to agree with you more than I do right now. It is so true. <laughs> it is so needed. I really think about it in terms of, well, let me be honest. I struggle with impact investing in the U.S. because uh, I worry that 
there's an unwillingness to reflect on the actual role of government. I think capitalism is so embedded in every aspect of American life that we're unwilling to admit how harmful it can be if it's not properly bounded. Um, So the idea of profit, rent seeking at all, at any cost is really a part of what it means to be in the U.S., right? Just think about healthcare all by itself. The inequities in the ability for people to be well as human beings is dependent upon people who want to make a profit in what they think is profitable, not dependent upon what human beings need. And so it is a bit terrifying sometimes to get into the conversations about impact investing in the United States. At the same time, like the example you gave, it's absolutely vital that people invest in businesses that are also going to produce a social good um, because we need those. And those are commercial products, right? Sanitary napkins are commercial yes. products, right? So that is that is very yes. real and it's very necessary for the women and for the environment. Oh, I couldn't agree more with everything you've just said, especially this part about the responsibility of government, mm-hmm. because you can't. And there was uh, this kind of dilemma that came up when in the, Uni- in the United Kingdom, when 600 million pounds of unclaimed assets were allocated to something called big society capital. Mm-hmm. Those were unclaimed assets held, which were put into this basket where it was kind of de facto giving a free pass to the government to not do anything yeah. and say, OK, private sector. You guys go ahead and solve all of our social ills. Mm -hmm. And that is absolutely not how and what, you know, taxpayer dollars should be allocated for. And so anything that detracts from, I don't know, the responsibility of universal health care that's equitable Mm -hmm. for all communities. Like, it's shocking to me that there's so much... Un, you know, a lack of regulation and an unbelievable playground of reprehensible behavior mm-hmm. that we see in the health sector, specifically mm-hmm. in the U.S., where the community and the the citizen is not at the center of that design. Right. And so I do think it is, it can be scary. I think impact investing has its place. Yes. I think anything that injects a little bit of soul into the capital markets is important. It's just that there's a lot of people, Adrian, who are also just, if I may, they're just taking the piss. Yeah. They're just, they're going into, you know, that's why there's so much impact washing, greenwashing. Mm -hmm. Everybody's saying, oh, we're responsible and we're social Mm -hmm. and they're deifying the venture capital model Mm -hmm. as though this is the panacea for society when, you know, 95% plus of their investments fail. Yeah. They're not even looking for, you know, to lift the tide that raises all the boats. They don't even care about that. So anyway, I will stop my rants, but I... I <laughs> rants are welcome. Rants are perfectly welcome. I want to integrate the book you and your colleague, uh, David Cooper Ryder, edited and released in 2021. So the book title is The Business of Building a Better World, The Leadership Revolution That Is Changing Everything. That is a very bold title. So if you might, if you would uh, talk about what role you want this book to play in the work that you and your colleagues are doing. 
Yes. Um, thanks for integrating it and bringing it up. It was uh, a really incredibly inspiring project and an edited volume. So what that meant was David David exercised his unbelievably prolific network and was able to get these incredible contributors, um, chapter contributors and authors to share bits and pieces of their experience and vision. And the whole goal was, let's capture stories mm-hmm. about people whose minds are just enlightened. They're at another level. They're already, they've transcended that kind of more primitive rent-seeking behavior mm-hmm. long ago for various reasons and are integrating boldly so new strategies into massive corporate structures. For example, yeah. we had Paul Pullman from Unilever, formerly of Unilever. We, I mean, we had thought leaders, Raj Sisodia. We had Rosabeth Moss Cantor. We had professors from, you know, renowned institutions, mm-hmm. all of whom were basically contributing their piece of a story that reflects an outsized awareness and consciousness of the importance of mission in business. Mm -hmm. It's kind of about trying to recast or reinvent the concept and the word business to mean something more. Yeah. It's a series of stories and cases. And um, we even had a beautiful chapter that integrated the concept of love in business. I mean, who... Who, who would think that those two <laughs> words even go together? Mm-hmm. And, you know, business and consciousness and enlightenment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah, we had, we had really incredible inputs from these folks. Yeah. And so it was a privilege to work on this. That chapter on love was fascinating to me because when I read the title, my reaction was, come on. <laughs> come on. Come on. Me too. When I first saw it, yeah. I was like, come, no way. <laughs> But I but. was I was inspired by it. I really was. And um, the minute um, you announced uh, the book was coming out, I went and downloaded it. And just looking at the chapter headings really excited me about what it means to dig into this conversation. Um, one of the challenges I have, though, in thinking about, again, capitalism and there's some a movement out there called conscious capitalism, right? These ideas that capitalism can actually be a good. uh, I often in my own book, I say that there is no kinder, gentler capitalism, that the minute you start doing these kinds of things, you're actually giving up a little bit of what capitalism is. And that's okay. It's okay to say, you know, this aspect of capitalism, we might want to move away from, but it's hard for anyone to admit that. It's like, no, we're just changing capitalism. I was like, I feel like it's really moving away uh, from capitalism, but that is terrifying to a different group of people. Um, Um, What are your thoughts about that? I think it's an interesting point um, about, is it taking, is it eroding some of the foundations of traditional capitalist theory mm-hmm. it probably is but it's it's it doesn't leave a vacuum and it doesn't leave a gap right. it's filled with other kinds of wisdom mm-hmm. and other kinds of strategies and approaches i remember uh, attending 
for a brief time, I had an opportunity to learn about First Nations in Canada and ended up somehow at an Indigenous business conference in Halifax. Wow. I'd only ever flown over Halifax. I'd never landed in Halifax. And at this conference where we had presenters, they, there were elders from the Mi'kmaq Nation who started this business conference by burning sweetgrass and saying a prayer. Yeah. I've never seen a business conference like that before, hailing the wisdom and the memory of the seven generations before us and the seven generations to walk after us mm -hmm. at a business conference. I mean, I had chills down my spine. All I could think was that level, the spiritual traditions that emphasize these concepts that humans are fundamentally connected, mm -hmm. that we are all connected through time, that there's, I mean, I know that in real terms, what we see on the news and everything that's kind of in our faces contradicts so much of this. But in real terms, I just thought this is the replacement of the foundations of that capitalist paradigm. Mm -hmm. And if we can actually exercise a little bit more of that compassion and empathy and have it manifest in real ways, in investment practice, mm -hmm. like if you actually are bringing empathy and compassion and an understanding of our connectedness, you will have a different view of risk. Yes. You will have a different view of how you assess the person in front of you mm -hmm. and what they look like and how they're dressed and what you think they are. Mm -hmm. And you might be willing to be just that much more humble about coming in with being on the money side of the table. Yeah. I don't know if it's all about a fundamental change in the DNA. Maybe it's just a little bit of editing of the, <laughs> of the, of the genome of capitalism. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure where I stand on it, but I think it's a really important point. Uh, thank you. The last question I want to ask you about in impact investing is what do you think is the greatest challenge facing impact investing right now? What is the greatest challenge? There's probably two or three very big challenges. Okay. I think it's important that we call bullshit on some of the rampant window dressing that we're seeing in certain areas, mm -hmm. in certain corners of like the, the market. Mm -hmm. Because obviously the larger the money becomes, the larger the ticket sizes become, the more the institutionals get engaged. It brings gravitas and credibility, mm -hmm. but it also brings that much more of an emphasis, a needed emphasis on due diligence. And like, are we really going to see great outcomes coming out of this gigantic social impact bond mm -hmm. or this structured product that this bank is putting out there. I think it's important that we retain the same level of scrutiny uh, of the largest players as we do on, uh, on the small ones. Mm -hmm. And as we've seen in so many different cases, big names show up, fancy names on advisory boards show up and people stop doing due diligence yeah. because they think everybody else has done it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's important. There's a crazy amount of fragmentation in the market where everybody and their brother and sister is doing their own thing. And lots of credit to everyone for the idea, the initiative, and the passion, but hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of bilateral conversations between an investor here and a project there, an investor mm -hmm. here and a project there. This is going on 24-7, you know, all year, all year round in every market, every nation, and there is a shocking lack of collaboration. Yeah. Like, 
everybody is uh, incurring massive transaction costs to do their fund and to show their little report at the end of the year. Here's my impact report. Then they take a picture of themselves in the field, in a village mm -hmm. with the villagers. And it's not to detract from that because some of it truly is impactful work and the outcomes are great. But if there are 600 funders working in East Africa focused on water and sanitation, you would think that we would have figured out by now how to incentivize collaboration so that yes. they become hyper-efficient and they're not. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a really big challenge in mm -hmm. terms of transaction costs. And I guess, you know, there's this proselytization angle of, you know, impact investors are trying to shift the consciousness of the traditional markets, albeit with the recognition that impact finance is a drop in the proverbial ocean yeah. of the financial markets. Yes. Negligent. I mean, it's so exciting for those of us swimming in this warm little pond, but it is negligible in terms of the grand scheme of things. And I think the big challenge is thinking, how do we help to showcase success stories? And it's not all going to be about success, but the success can be multidimensional. It could be financial return. It has to be social return. Mm -hmm. And there are great stories, but in order to move the needle, we have to start showing like real exits, real returns across the board. And um, it's got to be really empirical. So I think that's the other challenge still. Oh, I could listen to you talk about this all day. We might have to get you back. Uh, but <laughs> it's time for the last questions. What is your definition of equity and how does it show up in your life and work? Okay, that's a really important one. I guess to me, this this whole notion and concept of equity is rooted in justice, in recognition of what has come before us, acknowledgement of previous and historical injustice, mm -hmm. and really a very proactive effort to remediate that, to to ensure that there is, it's just equal, it's equal access and fair treatment mm -hmm. to everybody so that the, the levels of typecasting that we have experienced in every facet yeah. of everything from academia, educational institutions, all the way through every love, level and layer of professional work, so that that is diminished to zero yeah. so that the typecasting can be removed and there will be true freedom for everyone to have a shot. And so that's what equity means to me. And in terms of how, gosh, how do we integrate that into our spheres of work? The difficulty with this, Adrian, is like, there's a certain dynamic that is so hard to remove from the room when there's a fantastic social innovator coming in and pitching, trying to raise money, and not by any virtue of intelligence or skill or anything like that. It just so happens that I might be on the other side of the table listening to that pitch and saying, okay, yes, we must invest in you. Mm -hmm. That dynamic, that dynamic is something that is very difficult to reconcile with, you know, notions of real equity and, 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 and fairness in terms of human dynamics. And I remember I went to this UPS philanthropy forum years ago, fancy schmancy bank philanthropy forum. I got to listen into a couple of talks there. And this 
academic from a UK institution got up and was talking about philanthropy to a room full of UBS's highest net worth mm-hmm. private clients saying that when you sit across the table from the mission-driven entrepreneurs and the change makers who are coming in to ask you for money, you should ask forgiveness for wow. you being in the position, for you being in the position where you say yay or nay. Wow. And it was so interesting because he called it out in a very, very stark way. And I do think that just acknowledging the, you know, the, the tension in the room, the elephants in the room, and some of these dynamics will breed hopefully more compassion and empathy for what goes on on the other side around the table. Audrey, thank you so much for everything you've offered. And I'm very serious. I might need to listen to this, take some notes and have you come back because I think that there's so much more to say about all of this. So for our listeners, if they want to connect with you or follow you, how should they go about doing that? I'm on LinkedIn. Happy to connect there. So, and I'd love to continue, Adrian. Yeah. You know that we, you and I have a lot to talk about. Still. Yes, yes, yes. And we can find your book everywhere, right? So everywhere books are sold. I know I downloaded it from Amazon. Uh, we also have it on our Thank you uh, for Standpoint Bookshop. Um, so everyone, this is Dr. Audrey Sellian, S-E-L-I-A-N. Uh, so give her a Google, find her on LinkedIn. Thank Thank you you so much, Adrian. So much appreciate the chance to get together today. Me too. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Equitable. To connect and see the work we do to make equity actionable and to find all episodes of this podcast, visit standpointconsulting.com. You can also follow us on social media at Standpoint Consulting. Consulting.